This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. History has been made. I, Ketanji Brown Jackson, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all Justice enemies, Ketanji Brown Jackson was sworn into the highest court in the nation. She's the first black woman judge to sit on the Supreme Court. Though much of the national conversation this week's been focused on this and the fall of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court released some other big decisions. So joining us now to talk through the new justice and other SCOTUS news is Aziz Huck. He's a law professor at the University of Chicago. Welcome back to Reset. Thanks for having me, Sasha. So Katanji Brown-Jackson, she's the first black woman, as I said, to serve on this high court. Can you put this in perspective for us? Why is this such a big deal, such a historic moment? Uh, The Supreme Court uh, has played a role in the perpetuation of racial segregation and slavery for much of its uh, history. That was certainly true up until the Civil War, and it was arguably true until the 19. 19- Uh, 20s, when the court started striking down uh, segregation statutes, particularly in the education context. For an African-American woman, for a black woman to be on the court, uh, given that history, is a mark of tremendous change and incredibly important, not just for uh, citizens at large, people who live in the United States, but in particular for young lawyers who are women or who are black. Uh, who are otherwise minorities, who now have a, uh, a, a role model and an example of the pathway to the very height of the profession that uh, I think has been woefully uh, wanting um, for, for uh, until now. Yeah. And she chose to, to swear on two Bibles for her ceremony. Is that unique? I, I'm not aware if, that, if that's been done uh, previously. Uh, so I don't know whether it's unique. Do you know what uh, what they were? Which Bibles she used? I do not. No. I'm seeing here she swore on the uh, the family Bible, uh, as well as another Bible that was donated to the to the court by uh, Justice Harlan. Um, do you know what determines what justices will swear on? I believe that that is their choice. I don't believe okay. that there is any requirement that they swear, uh, uh, certainly there's no requirement that they swear on a Bible, yeah. uh, because there's no uh, requirement. Indeed, there's a, uh, a, an element or a piece of text in the Constitution that prohibits uh, religious uh, oaths. Uh, so the, uh, a new justice or a new judge would be able to either uh, swear uh, on a religious text or affirm uh, their commitment to protect and advance and defend the Constitution. Remind us what her confirmation hearings were like back in April. Judge Jackson, uh, before she became a justice, had a a series of confirmation hearings that were uh, subdued in comparison to some of the hearings that we saw during the presidency of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, In part, that's because the... uh, there were no uh, uh, explosive revelations uh, of the sort that we saw during the Kavanaugh hearing. Uh, and there was less of a sense that the path of constitutional law was on the line, uh, which was certainly uh, pervading the hearings for Justice Barrett. Mm-hmm. Um, Justice Jackson uh, comported herself 
those hearings with remarkable composure and remarkable acuity, navigating the usual political shoals of uh, a confirmation, notwithstanding some very aggressive and heated questioning from uh, the Republican side of the aisle. Yeah. Well, all eyes are now on what she'll have to do next. So talk about what cases she'll face in her first session as justice later this year. The court already has a number of very high-profile and nationally important cases lined up for next year. Uh, One is a challenge to affirmative action programs at a state university in North Carolina and at Harvard University, which is a private institution. The expectation is, is that the conservative majority of the court will limit completely, extinguish the ability of both private and public institutions to account for race in uh, admissions processes and in hiring. That's a a very important case. Mm -hmm. Uh, A second extremely important case uh, is one that was uh, granted for review yesterday. Uh, In that case, the court is going to consider a theory, one that has never been accepted by any lower court, that state legislatures have in effect, a monopoly on the ability to set rules for elections and manage elections. Under this theory, state courts, such as the one in North Carolina, uh, whose decision is being appealed, would have no authority, for example, to invalidate a political gerrymander under state law. Uh, This case and the doctrine in question there, the independent state legislature doctrine, has the potential to cause, first of all, massive disruption in our election system. Uh, And second of all, uh, particularly in the 30 states that are dominated by uh, Republicans, lock in a kind of political uh, uh, control Mm -hmm. that would be deeply troubling in any country that calls itself a democracy. So there are some really important cases that are going to determine not just the path of the law, but the parts of the nation that are going to be coming up directly on the docket for Justice Jackson. Well, Professor Huck, is there any chance that she'd recuse herself from any of these cases? I I, I believe that uh, Justice Jackson has said that she will recuse herself from the Harvard case because of her connections and attendance at Harvard, uh, but not the case involving the North Carolina State Institution. Okay. Uh, there's no reason that I'm aware of that she'd recuse herself from any of these cases, uh, including the independent state legislature case or the other uh, big tickets on the docket next year. Well, the high court's been been busy, as we've mentioned, between her swearing in and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We know the Supreme Court also decided to expand gun rights. So talk about that case, please. This is a case called Bruin, and it's a decision in which a six-justice conservative majority of the Supreme Court invalidated a New York statute that regulated the public carry of firearms. The the statute that was struck down, which required that people who wanted to publicly carry a firearm show some special reason why they would do so, is a relatively rare statute. And the significance of that decision is not so much the fact that this particular statute was invalidated. It's rather that the method that the court used to reach its conclusion changed dramatically. Until now, the practice of federal courts has been to consider Second Amendment challenges by taking into account the costs as well as the perceived benefits that flow from gun ownership and possession. What the court in Bruin said 
is that uh, in the future, Second Amendment challenges will be decided by text and tradition. Yeah. It said that consequences, the harms of gun ownership, do not play a role anymore in the constitutional analysis of Second Amendment questions. That is a tremendously consequential uh, move. It's a, it's a, a move whereby the court is basically saying, we are going to craft the law in ways that pay no account of the costs to third parties that a putative constitutional right imposes. And the court said, look, something we do in other places, but I, I don't think that that's true. I think with respect to rights around the criminal justice system, with respect to First Amendment rights, even with respect to equality rights, across the board, the court takes account of the costs imposed by, other, by the exercise of a right on the general public or on particular people. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the, first, the Second Amendment is different. Apparently, the Second Amendment is special. Apparently, if you want to carry a gun in public, you can do so, even if it imposes predictable costs upon others. The, uh, the High Court struck down a 60-year decision about Miranda rights. Can you clarify what they decided there? Uh, what the courts uh, held was that the uh, remedies for uh, a Miranda violation were much narrower than were previously thought. It was previously uh, believed that if you demonstrated a violation of the famous Miranda rights, which are the set of warnings that police officers have to give to uh, suspects who are both arrested and who will be questioned. If you, if you fail to give that Miranda rights, ordinarily what would happen is that the evidence that was gathered through the resulting interrogation would be excluded from consideration at a subsequent criminal trial. That remedy of exclusion was taken off the table, and now uh, we, I think, can reasonably expect that the incentives that police officers have for complying with Miranda will be dramatically reduced in relation to what was the case a few months ago. Mm -hmm. This ruling came down the day before Roe v. Wade was struck down. Are people talking about the timing of this? Like, do we think that the Supreme Court anticipated a lot of rioting ahead of them striking down the constitutional right to abortion? I, I, it's very hard to know what uh, determines the timing of Supreme Court opinions. One thing that I do think is striking is that the decision in Dobbs was handed down on a Friday, uh, rather than, and it was handed down not on the last day of the Supreme Court's term. Yeah. That suggests first the kind of uh, uh, acceleration or a eagerness on the part of the court to get Dobbs out into the world. Um, handing it down on a Friday, uh, which is predictably at the, at the lag end of the news cycle, is, is interesting. Um, it may be that what the court was hoping would, would, was to diffuse a certain, uh, to a certain extent some of the uh, predictable public anger at the Dobbs opinion by having it come at the end of the week when people were about to turn to things that are not related yeah. to the news cycle. Let's touch on a couple more cases while I have you here. And another one, the Supreme Court allows for the ending of the Trump era remain in Mexico asylum policy. Briefly tell us, what was that policy and, and what does striking that down mean for immigration? Between 2019 and 2021 on the southern border, uh, the federal government had a policy of turning people back uh, uh, at that border uh, to, as the policy's name suggests, remain in Mexico. 
the conditions that they were that those individuals were uh, to remain in in Mexico were um, horrendous, and there was a great deal of concern about the uh, physical, sanitary, and other risks to those to those individuals who are waiting at the border. Uh, the policy was cha- was uh, unsuccessfully challenged, uh, but repealed by the Biden administration. The case before the Supreme Court concerned whether the Biden administration acted lawfully in uh, withdrawing the Remain in Mexico policy. Uh, the court held that the statute under which the Biden administration acted uh, gave the government discretion with respect to detention. So the court said uh, Congress used the word may detain, not shall detain, mm-hmm. and that meant that the, that the government had uh, discretion. The uh, the court also ruled that the Environmental Protection Agency has less power than before to, to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. What power did the EPA have before, and what reasoning did the court give to strip that power? The EPA has power under the Clean Air Act to demand that power stations and other uh, pollution emitters uh, adopt what's called the best available technology. Uh, the uh, excuse me, the best available system of uh, emission reduction. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea is that you have to adopt the best system that is technologically available at the moment in time. That's the language that's in the statute. The court said that the EPA, in applying this language, could only impose a system at the level of a plant, and it could not impose a system understood as a a set of regulations that required certain kinds of power generation, but not others. And in particular, a system that pushed coal companies to phase out and pushed natural gas or or renewables into, into operation. The reason for the court, the reason that the court gave for that had nothing to do with the text of the statute. The text of the statute uses the word system, system might be something that concerns a particular plant, or mm-hmm. equally might be something that concerns the entire industry. What the court said is, uh, we, the court, the justices, think that this is uh, what we call a major question. It's a major policy question. And because we, in our judgment, think that it's a major policy question, we're going to say that you, the agency, are not allowed to take this decision. If this major question is going to be uh, something that is done as a matter of national policy, it has to be done by Congress and not the uh, agency. So this strips the agency of authority uh, to do what the court thinks are yeah. major policy decisions. The important wrinkle here is what counts as a major policy decision? That's not a term that's in any statute. It's not a term that's in any law. It's a term that the court made up. In the West Virginia case, the court essentially says that the Clean Power uh, Plan was a major policy decision because it affected the coal industry. So is that how we're to understand what the court thinks are uh, major decisions that federal agencies can't do, that they affect important and powerful interest groups? That's a deeply troubling doctrine of uh, judicial interpretation that really handicaps regulation to the benefit of powerful uh, commercial interest groups. We've got just about a minute left with you here, but I want to touch on one more. Uh, The high court broke centuries of legal precedent of Native Americans' sovereignty over their own land. What happened in Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta? Uh, 
Castro Huerta comes in the wake of a decision a, a year ago uh, called McGirt, in which the court held that certain uh, uh, tribes had tribal land that covered much of Oklahoma. And under the, as you said, centuries-old understanding of the division of power between tribes, which are supposed to be sovereign, uh, and the states and the federal government, McGirt's uh, consequence was that uh, Oklahoma and other states in which there was extensive tribal uh, land could not prosecute uh, uh, non-tribal members who committed crimes against tribal members in that land. That was one of the consequences of the McGirt decision. The decision uh, uh, this week um, reversed the element of, or, or the, or the implication of McGirt with respect to tribal non-members. The, the holding of McGirt that, that about a half of Oklahoma is tribal land still stands. But after Castro Huerta, Oklahoma or other states are free to prosecute uh, non-tribal members who commit crimes against uh, tribe members uh, without consent of the tribe. Mm-hmm. From the perspective of the tribes, this is a deep and uh, troubling infringement on their sovereignty. It does bear noting that the person who was, uh, who was, whose conviction was at issue uh, in Castro Huerta had committed an act that was of, 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 family, of domestic abuse that was, by any measure, horrendous. So it was an appalling act. And there, was, there are arguments that... Uh, uh, states are better equipped to pursue prosecutions against such individuals. Yeah. So this is a case that, um, on the one hand, concerns the sovereignty and the power and the standing of, of tribal groups. And then, on the other hand, there's a set of profoundly practical questions about how, in particular, offences of domestic violence and child abuse are going to be effectively policed and prosecuted. Yeah. So there's uh, a little bit more complex. There's a lot there idea. for sure. Uh, Aziz Huck is a law professor at the University of Chicago. Thank you so much for breaking that down for us. Thanks, Sasha. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.